Well, Tara, pretty excited. Uh, do you know why? Uh, no. <laughs> Tara, this is our first time we get to record the <laughs> podcast together. This is huge. It's a monumental moment. That's right. I've recorded now with Zach one-on-one, and then the three of us have recorded. But yeah, this is our first episode of just you and I co-hosting. It's going to be ultra professional because that's how I always run it. (laughs) Yeah, you, I mean, Zach and I were like top notch. So, uh, you know, there's a lot to live up to after the first few episodes that we recorded. Plus, of course, we get our first guest be from the amazing state of Iowa. I'm Tara Vanderdusen. I'm a dairy farmer in New Mexico and an environmental scientist. And I'm Mitchell Hora. I'm a seventh generation farmer in southeast Iowa. And this is the Fieldwork Podcast, the podcast by farmers for farmers. Season four of the podcast is made possible by a grant from the Walton Family Foundation. So thank you so much to them. And today we get to talk with a fellow Iowan and somebody from my alma mater, Iowa State, the Harvard of the Midwest. Um, Our guest today is Dr. Lisa Schulte-Moore. She's a professor of natural resource ecology and management at Iowa State and home of the, the Cyclones, the greatest football team to ever walk the earth. Wow, you guys are like really proud of that. I'm yeah, excited super proud. For... It's a big deal. <laughs> so Lisa is an expert on prairie strips, and I, I guess I should be the first to say I feel like this is going to be all new to me, so I'm excited to dive in. I don't know how uh, prairie strips are going to work out down in New Mexico. I hope that <laughs> uh, I hope Lisa's got the answer for us here. But Lisa, thanks for hopping on the show and uh, tell us about what are prairie strips and how does Tara get some of them going on the farm down in New Mexico. You bet. Prairie strips. Yeah. So that's kind of my thing. And what are they? They're diverse native perennial patches of vegetation. Here in Iowa, we orient them linearly through the field and on the edge of fields and uh, to address some of our our concerns associated with keeping soil in place, keeping nutrients in place and providing habitat for wildlife. In New Mexico, how would you do it down in the Southwest? There's actually people that think about this. And there's been some cool scientists at New Mexico State who's looked at using prairie strips in the corner of pivots to try to provide habitat and also just reduce the amount of wind around the crop environment there. Because we know that wind in an arid environment like that, right? It causes the crop to lose water, which affects productivity. So there there are applications even in, in the Southwest. Yeah, the wind never blows on the high plains, right? I don't I don't think that it's blowing 50 miles an hour right now. <laughs> so that's interesting. That's um I know that there has been research done about the corners of our pivots. Um so that's really interesting that that's kind of where it's where people are headed with it. So I feel like can we back up just a little bit? I feel like you guys are longtime friends, but I'd love to know a little bit about your background and how you got into um prairie strips and like obviously it's a very specific like research study area. So I'd love to know a little bit more about you and and kind of how you got here. Awesome. Yeah. So I also have a farm in Wisconsin. So that's a little bit of my inspiration. It's not the farm I grew up on, but it was my great grandma's farm when I was growing up. And at that time, it was a working dairy farm. So it was awesome to be able to, you know, go out and visit my grandma and my great uncle who was operating the farm at that time and see what the operation looked like. Of course, all the family reunions were always out there. And uh, that's where my family, we harvest our firewood every 
every fall. So lots of great memories from that farm. The 80s happened, (laughs) which if you were a farmer in the 80s, it was a really difficult time. And especially for dairy farmers in close to Eau Claire, Wisconsin, because of milk pricing at that time. Unfortunately, my family lost the farm for about 14 years. And my parents happened to be taking a country drive one day in 2002 and saw the original home place up for sale. And we bought 60 acres of it back and we try to increase the land area. Uh, my, My nephew, who's about Mitchell's age, would really love to start a beef cattle operation there someday. But we need more of a land base to be able to do that. So that's kind of my family background and connection with farming. My interest in sort of agriculture as a research topic, as a scientist, uh, didn't really take hold until I started at Iowa State in 2003. And before that, I, I was working in a forestry setting, looking at how we can, you know, supply people's needs for forest products while at the same time, you know, having a lighter touch on the environment. You know, how do we do that environmentally as well as economically? And I found that those skills that I developed in forestry translated very well to agriculture. So I didn't know a lot, I have to admit, about production and agriculture when I first moved to Iowa. So I probably spent the first five years just listening (laughs) and listening to a lot of farmers, listening to a lot of scientists until I felt like, you know, I could be conversant enough to maybe offer a few things. But I think that coming in as sort of a newbie really was an asset for me because I could say, hey, you know, I don't know about this. Teach me about it. And people were really willing to open up and kind of share their stories, ask their questions. And uh, I was able to sort of establish a, a research program that I feel, you know, helps address, you know, farmers and other stakeholder needs in terms of, you know, what we want from our agricultural landscapes. So how did that evolve? And was it prairie strips and stuff from the beginning or were you working on other things at the beginning in 2003 or, or through the early 2000s? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. And it really did start out with sort of from a, <laughs> a science standpoint, we call it human dimensions research, right? Uh, we always have to use all this jargon. <laughs> Very official. <laughs> Very official. Yeah, it's in jargon laden. But, uh, you know, it means something to, to scientists. It's a you know type of research. Uh, so really stakeholder driven, meeting people where they're at and understanding what their questions are, uh, what their information needs are, uh, what their vision is for the future in terms of their farms and their communities and the landscapes that they that they live in. So those were some of the first questions I was asking. It was just, you know, going to people in rural areas and saying, hey, you know, what's working? What's not? You know, where do you want to go? And, uh, and really using that as the basis for field experiments, for um, modeling experiments, for uh, future collaborations, uh, both on farm as well as, uh, you know, in in the lab. So that's how it all started. And um, one of the things I learned from uh, my professors here at Iowa State University as I was starting on these conversations is, you know, uh, there's a lot of talk about third crop, right? <laughs> Iowa just needs a third crop. And there was also a lot of talk about, well, if we want to address our concerns for soil health and nutrient retention and providing habitat, like step number one is we have to figure out how to how to keep the, the ground covered. Uh, and so 
there's a lot of options there, right? Uh, and uh, one of the ones we started to kind of brainstorm and uh, really got people excited was the idea of integrating our native prairie. So the basic idea is, you know, corn and soybeans, super productive, right? Uh, farmers know how to manage corn and soybeans better than any professor, right? <laughs> uh, and uh, we're not going to teach, a, I'm not going to teach how to do that for sure. <laughs> You're going to teach me. <laughs> so the idea is, is that corn and soybeans are super productive. They provide lots of, of goods and services for society. Um, and if we want to make corn and soybeans better, you know, how do we do that? Well, one idea is to blend our, our native ecosystem, prairie, into corn and soybean fields in really smart ways. And the idea, you know, native prairie built these amazing soils that we farm here, right? That's the basis of our wealth in this part of the world. And uh, they're well adapted to our climate. They're well adapted to our soil. They're well adapted. Our native wildlife is well adapted to these native prairies. And so can we sort of blend the best together, these highly productive uh, corn and soybean systems with our native prairie systems that do so many other things really, really well? So that's the basic idea. Yeah, Tara, once in a while, when you're driving through Iowa, once in a while, you'll see a corn or a soybean field. That's what she's talking about. Like, you don't see them that often, but every once in a while, you'll, you'll see them. Yeah, you. when we were together in Minnesota, you kind of mentioned that, that there's a couple fields like here and there. So there's a, just a couple yeah. of them that we drove past Yeah, when we were driving out to Zach's. There's like four or five of them, I think, that we saw the whole the whole time. <laughs> yeah, no, I really like the what you said, Lisa, about the that the native grasses are what like produce the soil. Like, I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it. Um, really helpful and just like very like brings it down to the basics of like, this is what created those soils. So like, how do we integrate those naturally, like natural systems back into it to keep that soil health going? Um, so what does it look like? What, like, what does it look like exactly? So you say blend, like, is it literally blended into the seed that you're growing both? Is it a, you know, you say prairie strip, is it a strip? Like, can you expand a little bit more on like kind of the visual of what this, what a prairie strip looks like and like how it works? Yeah, so it's not going to be blended into the field, you know, whole field, <laughs> uh, like you would maybe, a, you know, a cover crop, uh, for okay. example. Um, so there's, so when we work with farmers on prairie strips, farmers are oftentimes talking about wanting to keep their soil in place, right? Uh, that's like a key motivation is to address address soil erosion. And uh, in this part of the world we where we have these undulating hills, like a big concern is, is that soil loss that occurs as, as water runs across a field. And so prairie strips are generally um, generally integrated into fields along contours or at the edge of fields to help keep that soil in place. Think about uh, putting a speed bump in the field, right? And then uh, covering that speed bump with prairie vegetation. Uh, that's that's what it what it looks like. Um, and whereas things like uh, whereas conservation practices like grass waterways are oriented, with the flow of the water, right? So you're going to armor the soil in an area where the water is already concentrating and flow across it. Prairie strips are oriented perpendicular to that, that flow of water. So it's really about trying to slow that water down, allow it to infiltrate, allow the plants to soak it up. You know, some of it will evapotranspirate. 
Here, we really think about it in terms of orienting the prairie strip to intercept the flow of water. So, Tara, Lisa also brings up this other crazy concept about uh, rain. I was and about that we get that. rain here in Iowa. And uh, so, yeah, we have flow of water that happens once in a while. So that's what she's talking about. I know it is. I'm listening to her and it's just crazy. It is different. It's just unbelievable how different farming is in different places. Like your resource concerns. I mean, you guys are dealing with, you know, water management in the, the excess of the flow. And whereas we're dealing with water of farming without water is what I like to call it. So uh, I know I feel like water. I've try, I'm playing catch up here on understanding this uh, Midwest farming practices where you have water and um, fields that aren't in circles. <laughs> yeah, fields that aren't in circles. They're in all <laughs> kinds of other squiggly lines yeah. and up and down and all over. Yes. Uh, but yeah, not all quite in circles. But so Lisa, how I think a lot of farmers are familiar with, you know, CRP, the Conservation Reserve Program, and maybe now becoming more familiar with pollinator habitat. How is this STRIPS program different than some of those? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, Prairie strips are now a CRP practice, so can be kind of one in the same, right? Um, and uh, that happened as a result of the 2018 Farm Bill, where prairie strips were specifically listed as a new practice to be funded under, under CRP. And so, yeah, farmers can go into USDA service centers and ask for CP43 as, uh, as a practice for their farm and hopefully be able to get uh, that rental payment to install prairie strips. So that's federal. That's federal. So that's for any state, right? That is, is for any state. Or? Yes, okay. it's, it's, it's nationwide. Yeah. And so uh, my team here, the strips team here, we work very closely with USDA to try to, uh, or when USDA was developing that policy guidance around CP43, and uh, one of the key things about it is that we wanted to make it really flexible for farmers. So the important part of it is diverse, mostly native. We said mostly because in some areas, seed uh, sources can be a concern and uh, perennial vegetation that's really strategically integrated into the field in ways that make sense to support the farming operation. And so here, you know, we think about it on the contour, we think about it on, at the edge of the field, uh, intercepting runoff. Um, but uh, prairie strips can also be planted on the end rows. Uh, so, you know, to try to reduce the compaction on some of the end rows or just make field operations easier. And uh, there is that option of being able to place prairie strips in the in the corners uh, associated with pivots on fields. So super flexible. And that's one of the things that we've heard both from the USDA offices as well as farmers is they really like the flexibility of this practice. Yeah. When you mentioned the corners, um, that's where my mind immediately went was I feel like I've heard something about CRP and prairie strips like being combined on corners. Um, so I'm glad you got into that a little bit because that was kind of where I started thinking like, I'm sure that those practices must go together. So um, that's great. What, what great progress to have that added to um, NRCS and be a nationwide program. Yeah, and so far we have prairie strips through CP43 uh, in uh, 14 states across the U.S. So pretty excited about this, you know, idea that we innovated and researched right here in Iowa. <laughs> and now it's infiltrating, you know. Of course, moved. a great idea came from Iowa. Jeez, imagine that. Yeah. Go figure, right? And Yeah, go figure. 
<laughs> now moving across the country. So, and, and basically, so if farmers are interested in it, then they can just go in there, get signed up. Is it the same type of like a 10-year kind of contract and same payments? It's basically all the exact same. The big difference is don't just put a whole farm into CRP. Put it in the strip configuration where you can not only get the habitat and have kind of the set aside, but directly really think about control of water and the flow of water in a little bit different manner. Is that kind of the the key? And and what's some of the data um, pertaining to the benefits and and how does it work? And you know, do we have some numbers that we can that we can share? Yeah, <laughs> let's talk numbers. <laughs> Imagine that a scientist wanting to talk numbers, right? Of course. Um, yeah. So the research that we've done thus far on the impact of prairie strips has been done here in Iowa. We're now working with partners in Nebraska and Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, Missouri, Minnesota, Illinois to try to expand, you know, the research on prairie strips to have a better understanding of of their impacts in some of these other other settings. And as I mentioned, Tara, you know, there's some folks down at the University of or uh, New Mexico State looking at uh, integrating prairies, prairie strips and arid systems. Um, so what we found, and this has been pretty consistent across first our initial experiment uh, and uh, consistent across years in the initial experiment that we conducted, is that if you integrate prairie strips on the order of about 10% of a, of a crop field, you're going to see a 95% reduction in the amount of sediment that's lost from that crop field. So you think soil, you know, keep your soil in your field, right? Uh, and then moving with that, associated with that, we see a 37% decrease in the amount of overall water that's lost from that field, right? So we're keeping the water in the field, it's infiltrating in the prairie strip, it's moving down through the soil, you know, potentially can be accessed later in the season uh, for for those crops. Associated with that, that number is we see a 77% decrease in the amount of phosphorus that's lost, again, through the surface water runoff, as well as a 70% decrease in the amount of nitrogen that's lost. Now, these were in untiled fields, right? So it's going to be different on a tiled field. Um, but we but we see that both in the surface water runoff as well as uh, moving through the soil profile. So those the, the prairie strips are doing a really good job of sort of slowing down that water, allowing it to infiltrate, you know, filtering out sediment and nutrients that are, are moving with that water. And then we see about triple the number of pollinators on fields with prairie strips compared to those without and about double the number of birds. We are going to take a quick break and we will be back in just a minute. So I have like a twofold question for you um, about kind of how you went from transitioning from experimental strips to actually implementing them on like an operational farm. And then the second part of that question is if you're a farm that wants to implement this, how do you go from traditional farming to adding these in? Like, what does that kind of look like? What, How much work went into it? So a little bit twofold research to real life. And then in real life, how does that farm do that? Yeah. So the the transition from our research project to a you know commercial farm uh, operational project was was actually a big one, and it took a few years for us to figure that out. It would not have been possible without really innovative you know farmers that were willing to. Well, first of all, they saw the research and they're like, "Oh, I like those numbers, and it connects with my values for my farm." Right. 
And uh, they were willing to be, I would say, be patient <laughs> working with a bunch of scientists and uh, that, that didn't know how to do this on a commercial farm. It was, I can't underscore enough how uh, important a partnership it was and still is, you know, working with farmers to try to test this out and integrate it in really smart ways on commercial farms. Um, some of the farmers just, you know, we had very a couple conversations with them. Dick Sloan, I'm thinking about, who's up in Buchanan County, Iowa. He's like, yep, I've got a field where I want to put this on. It makes sense for me. You know, I've soil erosion problem, maybe an area that was a little bit less productive in the field. And he did it all on his own. He, you know, figured out how to access seeds and get the seeds planted and did it all on his own. Some of my re- my students have been uh, doing research on his his farm uh, in the last few years to try to look at the, the impacts. And it's, it's pretty impressive. Other farmers like Seth Watkins, who's down in Page County, uh, we worked really closely with him to come up with a design for his farm and, uh, you know, connect him with some, uh, sources of seed pheasants forever, provide the seed and, and, um, you know, local County conservation board, uh, provided the, the cedar, um, and, uh, you know, so it took uh, several times going back and forth, trying to think about, you know, how does this fit on this particular field? Uh, Seth got it seeded. And, uh, you know, one of the things that can go wrong with prairie strips is about the very next day, he got like a, you know, one of these six inch rainfalls, Tara. And, uh, yeah, on a, on a sloping field, that's a big problem, <laughs> You know, uh, so one of the things that we learned through that sort of trial period is perhaps in addition to planting those native prairie seeds, you want to plant a nurse crop seed as well. You know, something that's going to get that site covered much more quickly because the the prairie plants do take a a couple of years to really establish and take hold. So some of the farms that we've been working with since they put in a, you know, light uh, seeding of, say, oats uh, to try to help delineate where that location is in the field and, you know, get, uh, get seeds that, uh, will germinate very rapidly and grow rapidly and, and get that soil in place, um, very quickly. Um, so it's a process, uh, to sum up it, it, it's been a, it's a process and it's really been incredibly helpful to work with farmers as we go from sort of that research to, to application stage. In general, we we say it takes about, you know, by the third year, you're really having a, a vegetation that looks like that prairie, where it's, you know, diverse native, uh, you know, green throughout the, pretty much throughout the year, there's going to be something green in there, right? And, uh, and then also has that diverse uh, native uh, floral vegetation that's really attractive to, to the wildlife as well. So it's a process. I love that you shouted out all those early adopters. I feel like early adopters like need a round of applause. Those farmers that are like, yep, let's do it. Like your numbers look good. I trust you. Let's go for it. So, um, you know, thanks for shouting out those farmers. Yeah. And there's so many more too. Rob, let's go to Washington County and talk about Rob Stout, right? He's one of our, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Rob is like early adopter of the early adopters on everything. Yes. So <laughs> Rob's been amazing. But but so with some of these folks, I mean, you're scaling things up. How do they go about some of those other details? Okay, so it sounds pretty easy to go to the FSA office, sign up for CRP and mm-hmm. get the payment. That's no big deal. But then 
what's the rest of the process look like to figure out where do I put these strips and what exactly am I going to plant and how do I get it and how do I apply it? Are they all having to work through you and your students right now? Or how do we, how do we scale up, I guess, kind of the logistics? Yeah, yeah, great question. And uh, so when you go in the office, the FSA office, you're going to uh, be also working with a conservation planner on the NRCS side, right? And we've worked closely with NRCS in terms of developing a practice standard for prairie strips, as well as there's now uh, also a technical note that NRCS has to guide that implementation of how to put prairie strips on, on farmers' fields. And uh, so it's a matter of working with that that conservation planner to get a design that, of course, meets the criteria of the program, right? But um, also, you know, integrates it well in with those field operations for the farmer. It, moving the tractor about has to, you know, obviously still make sense, and and uh, you're going to want to farm your best acres, right? And uh, put your prairie, put the rest in the prairie strips, right? That's kind of kind of the idea. Um, so. Yeah, the USDA Service Center is the, is generally the first point of contact, uh, especially with getting those CRP acres. Farm bill biologists have also been really helpful in terms of a first point point of contact, as well as uh, watershed coordinators. Uh, all have been pretty well trained on what the options are with prairie strips and can put farmers in uh, touch with the resources, whether it be you know, the contractual stuff, whether it be uh, connecting with the seed source, you know, maybe they'll want to seed it themselves or maybe they'll want a, a separate contractor to do the seeding. So those phases of it. I should say too, Rob Stout was one of the farmers that we've highlighted on the podcast here before. So if you want to hear more about Rob Stout, you can go back and listen to some of our previous episodes of the podcast to hear, uh, hear some more about all the cool stuff that he's got going on too. So touching on the farmers, um, you mentioned kind of how they fit into you, you know, your system, but how are they a part of your research team? So you talked about interns going out there. What data are the farmers giving you for you to kind of like continue this research and see what's going on, like validate your numbers? Um, what does that look like for those farmers? Yeah, so for a subset of the farmers, and they generally be, tend to be the ones that are pretty close to Ames, just from a, you know, travel logistical standpoint, um, they've allowed us to come to their fields and actually, you know, monitor what the impacts of, of prairie strips are on, on their fields. Um, and so we've been looking at impacts on soil movement with in between the prairie strips, for example. Um, we've been looking at, uh, soil characteristics within the prairie strip itself and how soil health uh, characteristics are changing over time within the prairie strips. Uh, we've been looking at bird use, pollinator use of the, of the prairie strips. We've been looking at um, the, on a subset of farms, we've been looking at water runoff and what is the chemical constituents of that water that's, that's leaving the field as well as looking at at groundwater. So for them, it's <clears throat> been about allowing us to have access to their, their fields in some cases, installing equipment. And then uh, it, pre-COVID, <laughs> we were having a, you know, annual, uh, you know, stakeholder meeting where we would report back on the results of our research. The other thing is a, 
social science colleague that I work with, J.R. Buckle, uh, we send out a landowner survey every every year where they can tell us kind of what's working, uh, what isn't working, where their questions are, and so we can help uh, provide resources or potentially, you know, uh, ask new questions to to get their questions answered. One of the Iowa State projects that we've been involved with on our farm is utilizing a heat-seeking drone, an infrared drone, to to monitor nesting birds and pheasants and stuff like that. They were looking at the cover crop side of things and seeing, you know, obviously we're seeing a ton of of those nesting birds and game birds really come back. Um, Part of that probably due to the cover crop, but is that one of the things that you guys are tapping into as well for monitoring some of the birds and stuff? These, uh, I call it a heat-seeking drone. It's really not a heat-seeking drone. That's not a very technical term, but um, but is that one of the things you guys are doing and monitoring some of those birds and, and uh utilizing drones and stuff to be able to do it? We did uh, try an infrared camera to try to, you know, find out where some of those those nests are. And it, it works in the crop field and especially early in the season. So for birds that start establishing their nests uh, in late April, that's a really effective way to, to find nests. It's just, you know, heat seeking, right? <laughs> it's infrared. Uh, but um once you get into the prairie, the canopy of, of the prairie is, is dense enough that just that little bit of vegetation cover, uh, you know, it, it protects the nest and we can't see it from the air anymore. Yeah, that's one of the things I know for the project we were involved with. They had to go out really early in the morning when the ground temperature was still really cold and then utilize the drone to try to pick up the differential between the cold soil versus the actual bird itself. Um, but anyway, a cool deal. And uh, I think a lot of farmers would love to have one of those infrared drones uh, during hunting season. It would make uh, make for a lot easier, easier path. But um, so Lisa, what about um, the future here? What about adoption over the future? What are some of the goals? And you know, what does success look like? Great questions. So there's how much? Uh, 26 million acres that's been, <laughs> that's been- uh, Put it all into strips. Put it all into strips, that's right. Yeah, so for the CRP program, the, you know, the legislative cap right now is 26 million acres. You know, why not use our, our native ecosystems, right, to try to achieve those, those conservation goals? Uh, one of the farmers that uh, worked with Tim Smith up in Wright, Wright County, you know, it was so interesting. You know, one day we were sitting on his farm. He was helping me actually with some nest checks, uh, looking, we we're trying to check on, see if some of the, the bird nests that my students found, if they were still active. And, you know, just walking around his farm and, and talking, learning from each other. And he, he said, you know, the thing I love about prairie strips is it's conservation with a purpose, Right. And he was talking about, you know, all the data uh, that we've collected that shows the impact of prairie strips on the farm and then some of the downstream benefits in terms of improving water, water quality. And, you know, he he also was talking about prairie strips as conservation sort of 2.0. And, uh, you know, for a long time here in the Midwest, we've used brome as conservation cover uh, to try to, you know, slow down water and and keep soil in in place, Um, which, you know, has its place, right? It's easy to manage. It establishes fast. It's easy to manage cheap, right? And all of those things are really, really important. But when we think about trying to sort of maximize environmental benefit on, uh, you know, really strategically on the fewest number of acres, right? Uh, keeping the keeping the best in crop production. 
I can't imagine a, a, a conservation cover that's going to be better able to achieve those goals than our than our native our native plant cover. And so, yeah, just thinking about it as okay, this is next generation conservation cover. Yeah. So as we're looking to the future, you know, you started this back in 2003, I think you said. And last year you um, were honored with the 2021 MacArthur Fellow. So would you have ever guessed back back then in the early 2000s that you would have received such an honor in 2021? Like what is that? that uh, what does that recognition mean to you? And, and what do you hope uh, that will mean for prairie strips moving into the future? Yeah, it's a, yeah, I mean, the accolades <laughs> are, you know, it's, it's an incredible honor. I can't say enough how, what a big, big honor, honor that is. And I guess two things is that while it was an honor for my role in all of this to be acknowledged, I want to, you know, mention that I work in big teams, right? It's not just me, you know, no individual scientists can cover all of the elements that we've been been looking at for for so long without working in uh, without working in teams of other scientists. And I, again, I just want to underscore the important role our farmer partners have played in really thinking about how do we move this research off of, you know, experimental fields and onto commercial farm fields. And then the second thing is that, um, you know, it's, uh, I don't do this work, you know, for the accolades. You know, I do it for a, a deep passion in terms of helping people and helping our landscapes and, and trying to do so in ways that make sense that serve broader society. And that's awesome. And uh, definitely takes a whole team, but you're definitely still the queen of prairie strips. So, um, but what about, so, but step us back a little bit. What, what is the MacArthur fellow uh, program? Tell us a little bit more about, you know, what that actually is and, and who gets it. What's it mean? Is it statewide? Is it nationwide? Things like that. Oh, gal. <laughs> You're asking a Midwesterner to toot her own horn. It's so hard. <laughs> no, no, but what it, mm. yeah, no, but, but just to the overall, what is it? I mean, obviously it's a big deal, but like, what, uh, what's it about? Yeah, and, yeah. So the MacArthur uh, Fellowship Program is a nationwide uh, program that honors and tries to also just, you know, boost the recognition for people that are doing really creative work and give them more space to do that work, give them some monetary resources to do that work and, you know, frankly, amplify, amplify their work. It rewards between about 20 and 25 individuals throughout the U.S. every year from the arts, from the sciences, from you know, medicine, engineering, just all all activists, um, we're recognized for our creative genius. Is is what the award <laughs> award uh, seeks to recognize. So that's amazing. What an honor! Congratulations, and I promise we won't ask you any more questions that that make you that uncomfortable. <laughs> Super <laughs> uncomfortable with that. <laughs> but congratulations. 
I'm just trying to figure out for our creative genius of the Fieldwork podcast, like obviously we got to be getting somewhere on on the list. I mean, we're probably at least like a couple thousand away, but maybe we're working (laughs) in the right direction. We got Tara now. So, I mean, that creative genius has escalated massively since. Yeah, it's just interviewing people is definitely up there with doctors, researchers, scientists. Asking questions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing, um, you know, a little bit about Prairie Strips and your background. Um, If people want to learn more about Prairie Strips, where would you send them to? Or is there a, like, do you have a site for your research or what can we do to learn more? Yep, you can go to the web, www.prairiestrips.org. Oh, that's uh, easy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, got to make it easy, right, Uh, (laughs) for people. Yeah, and you'll get to all the research. We also connect to some of our partners in states outside of Iowa that are also now working with communities of people, agriculture and beyond to try to, you know, help share the story and help people put more prairie strips on their fields. I think Tara can get some on the corners of our fields and post it on Instagram. And then there you go. All your problems are solved. I know. I'm excited that this is possible in arid areas. I'm not going to lie. When we came on, I wasn't sure, you know, how how relevant of a topic would be in my area. So I'm super excited to dig more into this. Well, the follow-up episode here for next year can be how Tara's prairie strips are going on the corners of our pivots. (laughs) We'll have you out. You can help us plan our farm. Road trip. We can road trip down, uh, Mm -hmm. down from Ames, down to Tara's place. Go check it out. Awesome. Love it. Sign me up. (laughs) Well, Tara, it's been a fun first episode with you. I think we crushed it. I think so, too. I I mean, this was great. I mean, I can't, I don't want to like make Zach jealous of how great we did, but I really think this was a great episode. No, I'm I'm definitely all for making Zach jealous. (laughs) He totally missed out. Yeah, he did. This was a great conversation. Prairie strips. Like, who knew there was so much to it? Like, super interesting. So many applications in different areas. Tons of different applications. But I really like the flexibility. I didn't really realize that Mm -hmm. um, going into this. The flexibility with it and that it ties directly into the CRP program, conservation, uh, the, the conservation reserve program. And... Because of that, the economics work out well, and the economics then are based on your county economics. So that's how the pricing and stuff works. Um, But a lot of farmers are very used to that program. It's pretty simple to enroll. It's very well established and an awesome idea to be able to layer that on. So great work to Lisa and to to her whole team. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. People already know how to use the CRP program. And so to just like be able to plug it into that um, just seems so efficient and just that it's already something that we're all familiar with. That's it for the Fieldwork podcast today. Our show is produced by Todd Melby with lots of great help from Anna Canny. Yeah, I got to give a shout out to Todd. He's back. That's like a big deal for me too that, you know, we, uh, we've got a new producer here now and a new host. So there's a lot of things happening. Uh, but uh, Kristen Schmidt runs our social media. Lauren Humper is our project coordinator. Thanks to them. Uh, thanks to all our technical directors at American Public Media who help us record and mix the show. Be sure to check us out on social media. We're at Fieldwork Talk on all the usual channels, and we'd love it if you wrote us a review to help other people find us. And uh, of course, you got to call in, and now you get to hang out with Tara when you call in. I mean, it's a big deal. When you're calling, just me and Zach, it's just not near as fun. But hit us up, give us a question or a comment. The number is 651-228-4810. 
That's 651-228-4810. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you all next time. 